will you please welcome Holly Carey? Thank you. I um, am really, really glad to be part of this really cool um, three-part series that Derek uh, and your church has worked up. And I do feel like an honorary member of, um, of the church, and so always love coming back here. Um, so the back, to give you a little background to what I'm about to do, this was a paper that I presented at the Stone Campbell Journal Conference in April. Um, and the paper was meant to be, um, well, let me put it this way. It doesn't matter if I'm giving a paper in a conference or I'm in the classroom or I'm preaching at the pulpit. I'm always seeing myself as a teacher. So everything I do is really teaching in my mind. Um, so uh, doing this paper at the conference um, was really important to me um, to be involved in that. It was the first time there were three women who were the headliners at the conference, so that was kind of a big deal too. Um, and really uh, just was a timely thing. This is me working my stuff out before I send it to my editor. <laughs> um, and uh, so I appreciate, um, Derek's read a chapter of the book uh, as a reader. Um, several of my, my crew that came tonight have done that too for me. I love um, talking through this stuff. So I hope that this is helpful for you and know that it's just part, it's kind of a glimpse into sort of a, a bigger project that um, I hope will serve not just our own knowledge, but the church as a whole. So I hope that there's a trickle-down effect. Sometimes with scholarship, it just kind of stays with the really cool Mark Passion Narrative Seminar. Yeah, you know, like it stays with the, the stuffy people, right? Um, the Bible nerd. But I don't want that to happen here. I want it to be good scholarship, but I want it to trickle down. Um, and not down like, I don't mean that to sound condescending. What I mean is I want it to have movement. That's what I mean. Trickle Across, out, out. Good one. I like that. I got to get the trickle down economics out of my head, which is not effective, and we won't be doing that. Okay. So anyway, um, so we're gonna get started, and I do welcome uh, questions uh, at the end um, when I go through this. Okay. Today, I want to talk about discipleship. To follow Jesus. That's what discipleship is, particularly as it's portrayed in the Gospels. So the problem with most discussions of discipleship is that the pool of those who are considered to be disciples or even studied as disciples are frequently limited to the 12 apostles. So much so that the term disciples has kind of become shorthand for the 12 apostles. We often use it in that way, particularly in our church speak. At best, Sometimes we might think of the disciples of Jesus as including other male followers who kind of float around the periphery of the inner circle, the apostles, and kind of sometimes kind of dive in and, and, and connect to Jesus in some way and then are gone from the picture. And because of this apostle-centric focus, there's almost a wholesale neglect of the study of female discipleship in the Gospels. Now, I, I use that wording really intentionally, female discipleship. While we do have a fair number of studies that focus on women who follow Jesus, um, those projects tend to treat women as individual case studies. So let's do a book on Joanna. Let's do a book on Phoebe. Let's do a book on Mary Magdalene, right? Or 
Um, they're most interested in how Jesus treats the women, right? So that's a different kind of perspective. That's what we call Christological focus. It means it's looking through the lens of Jesus and saying, okay, how does Jesus think about these women? And those are great. Those serve the church. But I think it's also fruitful to ask about female discipleship. So what do these stories that we read in the Gospels tell us about the women who follow Jesus with a focus on their act of following him? Okay? So I'll show my hand a bit. I believe that as a whole, the women who commit to Jesus and who display their versions of discipleship in the Gospels are unique because there's one thing they all have in common. They're all women of action. These women whom we encounter are, on the whole, the best exemplars of discipleship because they do something. And in the process, they often serve as foils or contrasts to the 12 or to the other men around them who seem to often be frozen in their misunderstanding and their doubts and their fears. So it's important that we develop an understanding of discipleship in its fullest sense, right? One that includes women who served and ministered to and provided for and believed and argued with and evangelized and sacrificed and persisted and gasp, preached that first gospel sermon. We should make room for a vision of discipleship that is born out of what is often considered to be unconventional disciples. And so you might be thinking, well, oh, that's all well and good, Holly. But where's the evidence? You might not be thinking that, but scholars think that. And they like to say, show us the evidence, right? How do you know that female disciples in the Gospels demonstrate more faithful discipleship because they do things, because they are active? And that is a great question. I believe when it comes to the Gospels, the evidence is right there, and we've just overlooked it. Now, Sadly, with limited time, I can't work through all of the stories. Um, so I have to do the very challenging job of choosing just one. And just like the Lay's chip commercials of old. How old are we? All right. There was commercials for Lay's potato chips that said you couldn't eat just one. Right? You couldn't open the bag and just eat one of them. It's really hard to choose just one example of this kind of thing. It's pure torture to a Bible nerd like me. But I had to. And so naturally, I chose the story of Mary and Martha. That's a picture of Mary and Martha. And I put the words over Lazarus because I don't really care. Uh, it's Mary, Martha, and Jesus. And what's interesting about this story is that typically, we're going to get into this, most people read this story as doing exactly the opposite of what I've just argued. Because... Most people interpret this story, and we'll go into it in a minute if you're unfamiliar, um, as Jesus telling Martha to calm it down, to stop doing stuff, just to sit and listen like Mary does. To stop doing stuff. Or does he? Dun, dun, dun. Okay, so we're going to take a bird's eye view, then we're going to go into the story, and then we're going to go back and talk about how this fits in with this larger concept of discipleship. So first, it's important to note that at the center of his gospel, where we find Martha and Mary, and this story is only found in Luke's gospel, okay? Luke underscores the role that women have in Jesus' ministry. That's like a big theme in his gospel. Women are essential members of the community. 
They follow him, they support him, they serve him, they learn from him. And of the canonical gospels, so of the four gospels we have in the Bible, Luke is the only one who gives a shout out to women at an early point in Jesus's ministry. The other gospel writers don't really talk much about these female disciples until it gets toward the end of Jesus's life. And then they're like, oh, by the way, these women were here. But Luke tells us pretty early on in chapter eight, we know that they went along with him in his ministry. They contributed to his funding. Later in chapter nine, after emphasizing the urgency of following him, even if it means giving up your familial obligations, Jesus sends out a large group of followers and pairs and women were involved in that. And at the end of Luke 10, he tells this meal story about Jesus's encounter with a pair of sisters who are differing, uh, have different perspectives about what their priorities should be when it comes to being a disciple. So given the density of discipleship as a motif, as a theme in Luke in chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, and in the end of chapter 10 in our story, um, and that women have a prominent role in those stories, they should be understood as critical evidence for Luke's understanding of what female disciples, what the place they had in Jesus's ministry. And so one reason to the Martha Mary story we're about to talk about is that it comes smack dab in the middle of all that stuff in Luke about discipleship, okay? So the place of these, this element in the story matters, just like in our movies and in our TV shows where they give us that information matters, right? But I think there are other reasons too. So let's take a closer look at the story. In Luke 10, shortly after Jesus sends out the 70 disciples, he accepts an invitation from a woman named Martha to come to her house. And while there, Martha busies herself with the many tasks of hosting, while her sister sits at the feet of Jesus to listen to his teaching. Flustered, Martha appeals to Jesus, demanding that he make her sister help her with the work. But Jesus refuses. Instead, he corrects Martha and uses Mary as an example of what to do. So this is the text, and I know it's a little small, but it's always good to be on the same page. This is a, uh, the NRSV translation. I'm about to read this, and then we're going to talk about ways we could improve this, okay? So now as they went on their way, he entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he was saying. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks. So she came to him and asked, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. There is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, which will not be taken away from her. So upon first read... Okay, a natural understanding of, what, of this would be that what Martha is doing is what we should not do as disciples, right? Is that the vibe you're getting? Martha's doing the wrong thing or her attitude's wrong or whatever. Martha is a no, Mary is a yes, right? Mary's doing what disciples should be doing, listening to Jesus. And that has been, I would argue, the historically common interpretation of this passage. It's the stuff that I was certainly taught growing up about Martha and Mary. Martha is what not to do, and Mary is what to do. This has been the basis of many a sermon and a women's Bible study, 
And if we were to condense the premise of the story from this perspective into a popular meme of the last couple of years or so, I think it would probably look like this. (laughs) The Real Housewives of Bethany. It's often framed in this way, right? Martha's rushing around. She's too stressed about hosting to be a good disciple. But Mary, Mary was the one who did what all disciples should do. She didn't busy herself with unimportant things. She kept a cool head. She's a cool cat. She sat and she listened. So Martha should do less doing and do more sitting. Martha is the unhinged and bitter one. The one at fault in the story because she chooses the wrong activity with her time. So in response to that, which I think has historically been the most traditional reading of the passage, feminist scholars such as Elizabeth Schusler Fiorenzo, who's a really groundbreaking uh, feminist Bible scholar, have argued the opposite because, you know, they're not wanting to take what's been given, right? So they, they're saying, whoa, 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 wait a minute here. And Schusler Fiorenza argues that it was Martha who was actually the one honoring Jesus and that the only reason Luke presents Mary in a positive light is because his community is putting pressure on him to suppress the leadership and activity of women. Okay? So Schusler Fiorenza is reading kind of behind the text at what's going on in Luke's context and saying the reason that Martha's getting such a bad rap here is because she's actually doing the right thing. And it's Mary who's doing the wrong thing. In fact, Schusler Fiorenza says Mary's not doing anything. And that's a problem. According to this view then, the only reason that Martha's criticized is because she's presuming too much in a patriarchal society. And Luke's community is rejecting that. But I argue that upon a close reading of the text, neither of those options are best, which is what we love to do, right? present two options and then say, nah, none of them, right? Both of those options fall into the same trap, essentially. And that is a trap that Martha ends up making with her question or her demand. A false choice, if you will. While Mary and Martha seem to be polar opposites in some ways, in reality, we don't have a contrast between a non-disciple and a true disciple, right? Both of the women follow Jesus. One, Martha, expresses her discipleship by serving Jesus as a host. And the other, Mary, does so by learning at his feet. So those who want to elevate Mary's choice over Martha's incorrectly assume that service and listening to Jesus are incompatible actions. You can't do both. You have to choose one. And what should you choose? Listening. Right? She's too busy. She's being distracted. She can't take in what Jesus is saying, so she's not following Jesus. She's just doing busy work. That's Martha. On the other hand, those who want to elevate Martha's choice, right? Martha's the right one. They argue that Martha's service is being rejected by Jesus simply because Luke's context says is kind of being uncomfortable with female leadership, right? And so it's Martha who should be applauded because she's actually doing what she's supposed to do. These, this argument sort of pictures Mary as metaphorically twiddling her thumbs, not doing anything while Martha's doing all the work. 
The problem, however, is not that one sister's action is greater or better than the other when it comes to discipleship. The point is that Martha frames it all wrong, right? She makes a problem where there is actually no problem. So, it might be helpful first to look at what the text actually says, which is, it's hard to be serious and look at that. Um, What the text actually says, which I kind of hinted at a little bit, because there's actually some issues in translation here. So, I'm actually going to, for free, give you some Greek here. Uh, But um, I hope it's not frivolous. I hope it's actually going to be beneficial. Um, So just a little background, and I don't know how much Derek has talked about, um, but I don't want to assume things. So just to say, the New Testament, I wish it had come to us in one whole nice piece, but it didn't. We have copies of copies of copies of copies of the originals. We don't have any originals in the Old or New Testament, okay? So we're relying on professional scribes to copy the manuscripts that they're given. And then they pass them along to their communities. And then when their you know, manuscript of Mark gets worn out, then they'll recopy right, and continue on passing down those manuscripts. So what we have are bits and pieces of manuscripts. And what scholars have done is they've taken the bits and pieces and they've tried to figure out, okay, what is the most, what is, how can we get as close as possible to the, the OG, right? The original, okay? That's called textual criticism. It's real intense and it is a, it is a special skill, okay? And so when you um, go to Amazon and you uh, look up Holy Bible in English, and you get 95,000 different translations. The reason for that is partly because we don't just have the New Testament, you know, sent down to us like that, right? It's in pieces. And sometimes what that means is that in one place, archaeologists might have dug up a copy of Luke 10 that says one thing, and in another place... They've dug up a copy of Luke 10, and there's some differences, okay? And so scholars who do this sort of thing will compare those, try to figure out, well, which one's one's most likely to be what Luke wrote? That's the idea, okay? Which one's the closest to the original? And so for um, part of our section here, Verse 42a, the first part, which is Jesus' response to Martha, okay? This is where we're at in the story. We actually have two strong readings, two strong options, okay? Some manuscripts have what I've called the shorter reading. And other manuscripts have what we'll see is the longer reading. And then scholars get together and they make a mud pit and then they, they kind of duke it out, right? About which one is the best reading. Now, as probably realize most English translations opt for the short reading. And it says this, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and distracted about many things, but only one thing is necessary. That's what I read just a little while ago, right? Only one thing is necessary. That's the short reading of verse 42a. The other option, what we creatively call the long reading, says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and distracted about many things, but few things are necessary, or indeed only one. You see the difference, right? 
The short reading says only one. That's all you got to worry about. The longer reading says, well, actually, few things are necessary, but I'll focus on the one. Okay? So there's a scholar named Tommy Wasserman. He does some work on this text, and he argues that the, surprise, short and most common reading isn't the best reading. It's probably not what Luke wrote. That it's the longer reading that is the best reading. And here he's following a tried and true principle of textual criticism. The most difficult reading is the original reading. Now, why would we say the most difficult reading is the original reading? If a scribe, imagine yourself to be a scribe in the second century, and you've got Luke's gospel, and you get to a place in that gospel where it doesn't make a lot of sense to you. You might even think, oh man, the previous scribe really screwed this up, right? Or it's unclear. What is the scribe like? Make it clearer, right? Simplify? Yeah, because he's doing a service, right? This is not malicious. It is less likely that a scribe gets to something in a text and that's super simple and easy to understand. Let me, let me complicate this a bit, right? So the original, that principle, the original reading is probably the most difficult reading, makes a lot of sense when you really think about it. It's easier to go simpler, less complicated, than to go make something more complicated, okay? So Wasserman says, okay, it makes much more sense for a scribe to misunderstand what Jesus is doing here, which means he doesn't understand what the few things mean, that's in the long reading there, and what the one thing means. On the surface, doesn't the long reading sound a little bit contradictory? I mean, Jesus, decide here, please. Is it few things or is it one thing? Make up your mind, right? Can you have both? It is a little confusing. Especially if you don't know what the few things are and the one thing is. Contributing to that decision for the scribes to mostly go shorter reading and even modern translations to choose a shorter reading is the fact that Christians early on were already reading this story as a Martha versus Mary story. An either or story. I mean, who doesn't like a little drama at the family dinner table, right? So while textual variants often serve no more purpose than to be an intriguing case in the difficulties of human transmission of texts or as a torture device for second-year Greek students, in this case, the alternative reading changes the meaning significantly. Jesus' response is not, there's only one thing that's important, right? There's only one thing that's necessary. If that were the case, then he's talking, of course, about Mary and listening, and he's choosing Mary. And because he does that, only one thing, he's actually pitting the the sisters against each other, right? But in the long reading, Jesus refers to the actions of both sisters as legitimate. The few things is Martha's service. It's the meal that she's serving. And Mary's listening is the one thing. So the few things are necessary too. As Gordon Fee has pointed out, that's emphasizing the body, right? The feeding of the body. 
And it really gets to Martha's anxiety, right? She's trying to provide for the physical needs of her guest, Jesus. And Jesus says, yeah, it's important to eat. But he underscores the mistake that she's making in choosing that over what Mary's doing. Another textual variant, because I know you just haven't had enough, is in verse 39, and this is the last one, but it's a simple one, and it makes a truly, uh, I think, a real difference in how we read this passage, right? The sisters are not one disciple and one non-disciple. They're not Martha versus Mary. How do we know? Because there's actually a variant which adds the words, I put it in yellow, but you may not be able to see, sorry. She and her sister, back up. This is in verse 39. And she had a sister named Mary. So he's just introduced Martha, right? And she had a sister named Mary who also sat at the feet of the Lord and listened to his words. Now, that may not sound very important, but the who also, who also, what does that imply? Hi, meet my friend Mandy. She also plays basketball. If you overheard that conversation, and that, that person I'm introducing Mandy to, exactly. So, if Mary is introduced in the story as a person who also sat at the feet of Jesus and listened to his words, what does that make Martha? A disciple. She sits at Jesus' feet too. So, what that means is, that sit, sitting at the feet in Luke's gospel is code for being a disciple. It's not necessarily telling you, if you were a director of a movie, where am I going to place Martha and where am I going to place Mary? Oh, well, Mary's right there at Jesus' feet and Martha's way over here. It's not a spatial indicator. It's an indicator of their, their action as disciples, that they're both disciples of Jesus, no matter where they are in the room. Martha's a disciple of Jesus, so is Mary. Now, it's easy to see how a scribe who is increasingly interpreting this scene as Mary versus Martha, right, or serving versus listening, wouldn't make sense to add also there. So out with also, which in Greek is literally one letter. Easy to get rid of there to help make the most sense of it. And when that happens, Wasserman says, the scribe confines Martha to the kitchen. So if the variant's there, it underscores the fact that both sisters are disciples. It holds room for both of them to be sitting at the feet of Jesus, metaphorically, as disciples, listening to him. A false choice also doesn't make sense of what actually happens in the story. Martha And doing the task of hosting isn't stopped by Jesus. Did you notice that? He does not criticize her actions at all. It's only when she demands that he intervene and force Mary to join her that Jesus has something to say about that. Martha drags him into a sisterly fight here. Martha's the one who initiates prioritizing the action. That's what she wants Jesus to do. Rank our activities, Jesus. Which one is most important? And that prioritization, that ranking that she wants is motivated by her anxiety. And Jesus objects to that. So um, throughout Luke's narrative, I don't even know when we started. When did we start? How long have I been going? Okay. 
Um, Y'all brought sleeping bags? Cool. All right. So um, throughout Luke's narrative, we are told that service and discipleship always go hand in hand. So when you are serving, you're doing what it means to follow Jesus. That's part of it. And so it would be really strange, even contradictory, for the Mary Martha story to suddenly tell us, oh, just kidding. Serving doesn't matter. You need to just sit there and listen. So I've got some examples, and I'll just do it real quick, that um, are in Luke's gospel, just right around the story or leading up to the story, which tells us serving's kind of a big deal, right? Jesus, anointed by the, quote, sinful woman in Luke 7, 36 through 50. She barges into Simon's house. She's not invited. He protests his guests at the dinner table protest. They're so mad that she's done this. And yet the woman is remembered for what she does in service to Jesus, not who she has been described as, sinful. The story actually undermines that label, and we probably shouldn't call her the sinful woman anymore. And if you've got that in your Bible heading, I authorize you to scratch out sinful because Jesus takes that away from her as a label. She's not a sinful woman anymore. She's the one who shows her love to him. She's a better host than Simon is. He doesn't even listen to Jesus, really. He's too busy complaining. Immediately following that, we're told that um, there are a bunch of women who are with Jesus and his ministry in Luke 8, 1 through 2. He mentions two specific groups, the 12, and then some women who have been cured of evil spirits and physical ailments. And like the 12 that had already been listed in chapter 6, some of the women are listed here in chapter 8, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, and Susanna. Unlike the 12, however, their primary function in the group is explicitly stated. They, quote, provided for them out of their resources. So this is the group of women at the end of the gospel too, who watch Jesus be crucified, go to see where he's buried, prepare the spices for his body, bring them after the Sabbath to the tomb, become the first to witness to the empty tomb, encounter the men at the tomb, and receive the first announcement of Jesus' resurrection, remember Jesus' prior that they received while they were in Galilee with him, and then even in the other gospels, go and tell. Now I want to highlight the through line in the narrative here. These are the same women who were sponsoring Jesus' ministry, and then they are there at the end of it. They're always in the background of the story, see? They've been there all along. This is further accentuated by the fact that Luke includes these women alongside the 12. He thinks of them as belonging. The women in Luke 8 are highlighted for their actions. Guess what the 12 are highlighted for? Nothing. (laughs) They're there, but they ain't doing anything. It's the women who are supporting Jesus' ministry. And I don't think there is any reason to assume that this was limited to putting food on the tables, although that's not to take away from that service. But some scholars will say, oh, well, yeah, they were doing what women were allowed to do, feeding the men. No, 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 no. This word is benefaction. It's the same word that's used if you go to ancient Rome now and you see some of these 
on these aqueducts and buildings where these people have given funds for the city and the city turns around and praises them in public for their benefaction, their love, their grace toward their city. This is what these women are doing. It's financial and social support. They're with Jesus. They're alongside the 12. They're disciples. I don't think there's any reason, I'm going to summarize this one real quick, why we can't understand the women to be part of the 70. They were just doing all the funding of the ministry and then Jesus sends them out and they're going to preach the gospel. There's got to be women involved there. So that's the short version of that. Okay, Good Samaritan. This is one of my favorites, right? Right before the Mary Martha story, we have one of the most familiar of all of Jesus' parables. And this is also about pro-service, right? Think about it. The force of the parable, the gotcha moment, comes when the person who is least expected to act does so. It's not the priest or the Levite who helps the man. And just as an aside, when you're reading carefully, I think we almost always assume that's a Jewish man laying there. His ethnicity is not mentioned. And I think that is Jesus' way of telling this lawyer who's just been asking, hey, who's my neighbor? And by the way, he's not wanting Jesus to list all his neighbors. What's he wanting to do? He's wanting to find out who he can exclude. If you tell me who my neighbors are, I know who my neighbors aren't. And I can just cross them off the list. Notice that Jesus doesn't play those games. How? He doesn't even tell us where this guy comes from. We don't know who he is. We have no idea. Jesus isn't playing the games of ethnicity or any other social um, break or social category that the lawyer who's asked the question wants him to play. It's a Samaritan who does something. The placement of the Good Samaritan. I got an amen. The place of the Good Samaritan right here is to continue this idea of service and discipleship, the doing. And nowhere is this clearer than in the actual parable itself. How many times does Jesus emphasize doing in this parable? Four is a pretty high number. It's a pretty high stat. It's pretty repetitive. Okay, his professor would have said, please use another word. Okay? What must I do to inherit eternal life? That's what the lawyer asks. Jesus says, do this. Do what? Do the Shema. Do the uh, loving the Lord your God with all your heart and then also loving your neighbor as yourself. Deuteronomy and Leviticus. And then at the end of the parable, who is the person, is the neighbor? That's what Jesus asked the guy and he says, the one who did mercy. Did mercy. And what does Jesus say in response? Do likewise. As my kids might say, that's a lot of doo-doo, right? All the time, Jesus is emphasizing doing. All right, the cadence of the story lasts, and then I'll leave it, I'll leave it alone. Maybe, okay. The cadence of the story, have you ever noticed this? It's like any good joke, right, with the three parts, okay? So you've got the priest who came, who saw, who passed by on the other side, the he saw, he passed by on the other side. So now we've got a rhythm, right? We've got an expectation. That third person's certainly going to do the same thing. Skirt, no. 
The Samaritan came. He saw. He was moved with compassion. He felt something. And then he went to the man. It, complete, it really is a skirt. He really did change direction. And what made him change direction? What made him act? Samaritan is showing compassion of God. This is what people of God do. He shows no concern for reciprocity, which is of high value in Greco-Roman culture. But that's a, if you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours type of analogy there. He doesn't expect payback. Notice how stopping on a road that is notorious for robbers and trying to pick up a practically dead man and put him on your donkey might leave you a little vulnerable. And he doesn't think twice about it. He pays for the man's care at the end. And on top of this, he keeps an open tab. Did you notice that? He tells the innkeeper, listen, care for the guy. I got to go, you know, run an errand. Okay, I got to go to Aldi. And when I come back, just tell me how much you spent on him. What? He doesn't know this man, and he has opened himself up to extortion. What's he going to say when he gets back? Nah, you didn't send that, spend that money. No. He has made himself vulnerable by providing hospitality. So, in the prior four chapters, up to our story, service and action. That's what it means to be a faithful disciple. So, are you a Mary or a Martha? Uh, wrong, wrong question. You shouldn't be a Mary or a Martha. Remember, it's Martha who frames this as a choice to serve or to listen. And rhetorically, that tries to force Jesus to pick one, right? To rank one over the other and to compel Mary to do what she wants. Well, we've already seen that Jesus acknowledges the goodness of both of doing the task that Martha is engaged in, and of doing what Mary does in listening to him. This is an, a posture of a disciple, as I mentioned earlier. So if he's not criticizing Martha for her service, wrapping it up here, then what is he? What's he doing? What's he concerned about? Because Jesus is clearly concerned. So what's he concerned about? It's her distraction and her anxiety, verses 40 through 41. And no wonder she's anxious Scholars have talked about how the whole idea of women having a well home um, started with Aristotle, this idea that if the home is well ordered, then that will then be reflected in the government and in the state. Does that sound familiar? Mm-hmm. Uh, Emperor Augustus used this, right? He would use family language to talk about the empire. And of course, Augustus is the paterfamilias, the head of the family. And so basically that meant he could do whatever he wanted, right? But his idea was, as paterfamilias, um, the empire needs to be, I need to make sure that the empire is stable, that it's well-ordered, that it's working well. And how does he do that? He gets his nose in the family's business. He starts paying uh, money and giving uh, political perks to families who had more than three children because he bought into this idea that the family is the microcosm of the state. And so if Martha's in that environment, of course she's freaking out. She has the most important guest she's ever had, and she needs to make sure that everything's going like clockwork. She wants to show off she's the best hostess 
she can be, and her sister isn't helping with that. And so she's freaking out. It's common for scholars to try to take from this story clues about what Luke thinks about women's roles or which one had the correct priority. And I think that's just falling into the trap. If you choose it, if you frame it as an either or, you're just doing what Martha did. And then Jesus kind of weighs in on that, right? But any correction that, Mar- that Jesus has for Martha isn't due to she's doing the wrong thing, but is due to her trying to uh, make a hierarchy between her and her sister. And when she does that, that leads to her distraction, anxiety, comparison. And I think that that's important here. This is a clue. Jesus calls her name twice. Did you notice that? Martha, Martha. That double calling, that repetitive calling shows up elsewhere in Luke. In chapter 13. Jesus is moving away from Galilee and he's headed toward Jerusalem. And he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. I wish I could gather you up like a hen gathers her chicks. Of all the emotions that Jesus could have had toward the place that will be the literal death of him, he chooses compassion, not anger. And he has that same sort of response toward Martha. He's not angry or frustrated. That doesn't work with anxiety. (laughs) Compassion, care, that's what works. And that's what Jesus shows Martha. And as a pastoral side note, this strikes me as a response that is as socially radical now as it was then. You know, we live in a world that prioritizes appearing busy and stressed and anxious, that that's somehow deemed a marker of productivity, right? If you look like you're freaking out, you must be doing good work somehow. And this is especially true for women, by the way. Jesus urges us to follow him by doing, but not by comparing our discipleship to others or by demanding that they follow him in the way that we prescribe it. For those of us who deal with clinical anxiety, that's a relief to know that Jesus values what we do in service to him, but he also has compassion towards us when our anxieties threaten our relationships to God, to others, and even to ourselves. So this passage is actually more about what female discipleship can be, not what it's not. Martha's not a failed disciple. In fact, quite the opposite is true. Jesus has just stated that those who welcome and set food disciples are indicating that they are ready to receive the good news and that they are acting like they're receiving Jesus too. Martha joins her fellow disciples, female disciples who serve in different ways. And Mary, by the way, is not inactive just because she happens to be sitting by Jesus' feet. Listening is action too. She is doing discipleship just as Martha is. I think I'll leave it there.
And if y'all have any questions, I think we have a few minutes for that since we started a little late. Yeah. <laughs> It's okay if you don't, but if you do, or if you want to email me later, you could do that too. Do you have a time, when do we start noticing people reading the female stories in the Gospels more, more or less patriarchal? Yeah, so um, <laughs> this is funny. Um, this is probably going to, that's probably going to end up being volume two of my book because I originally, when I pitched the idea, the proposal, I was going to include all that. And they were like, ah, oh, that sounds like two books worth. And they were right. I guess they know what they're doing. Um, so, um, uh, my suspicion is, and from some conversations I've been having and some reading that I've done, um, as the church becomes bigger and becomes more um, bureaucratic, right, um, that there becomes this need or this felt need to decide who gets to call the shots and that then this sort of... Um, Praise upon the already sort of underlying views of women that I think the early church was actually pushing against, but was radical, right? That women have a seat at the same table um, was a pretty radical idea because they, they were pretty much thought of as property for the most part, with some exception. If your status could outrank your gender. It could make up for your gender. So if um, Emily was like really high status, she had the right kind of family, she had a lot of money, she's given a lot of gifts to the community, then maybe we can overlook em the fact that Emily's a woman, right? Because her status is sort of giving her a one up there. But typically, most people didn't have that kind of status. So it's your gender that sort of limits you. And so the church, I, I see in the early church that pushback. I see it in the Gospels. Um, I see it um, in Acts, which is a continuation of the Gospels. I see it in the letters. <laughs> um, but you're right, something changes. And it becomes pretty deliberate. Um, I, it's interesting, I was talking with a Jewish scholar who studies the New Testament, and we were talking about how Jewish communities tracked that way too. So it wasn't just Christians who were doing that. There's something in the air culturally. Um, we know that Christians were persecuted and that and persecution was increased when things weren't going well in the empire. And we might also notice a pattern of when there's unrest and unease and things aren't going well, the typical human response is not to say, well, let's be more free and open and accepting. It's to tighten up, right? So you see that too. So I'm suspecting it's those outside forces that are starting to kind of press in upon that. And so the ways that women um, are allowed to impact the church are more local and more unofficial. Does that also sound familiar? Any other questions? So that's a little bit of a, we'll see if I'm right. I don't, 
I haven't done all the work to do, but I think that that's, that's my suspicion from what I know so far. And then, you know, Beth Elizabeth, uh, Beth Allison Barr's book um, is also, God, no, just kidding, uh, is also really good, but she's going from like sort of medieval, that's her area, so it's a lot later. So there's a whole gap there in the early patristic period that I want to work on. Yeah. What I think so valuable is that we learn from stories. Oh, yeah. So it's interesting because um, <laughs> what we have is a result of choices that are made. So I think that it's embracing kind of the complexity of it and not being scared by it. So for me, textual variance doesn't mean God is absent and I don't trust the Bible anymore. It means he trusted humans who are humans. Right? And so if you have evidence, you have to weigh the evidence just like with anything. And part of that is trusting or thinking about where is it coming from? Right? What are the sources? Okay? Um, does this person have a particular axe to grind? <laughs> you know? Uh, and why? And so maybe that's why they say this this way or, you know. So the variant, in the example of the variance, it isn't because it's like, oh man, if we just had a letter, that would really help open things up. They're there in the ancient manuscripts. It's just that you've got maybe 60 of those little pieces with the hay, and you've got 60 little of those without it, and now you've got to figure out, okay, like what is likely to be the original? So there's some like uh, really like a cut and dry like skill work involved, which just comes from the nerds who do that sort of thing. Uh, and, but then it's also this idea of, okay, so again, going back and saying, okay, so what would make someone change it one way or the other? Like what would, make a, what would compel a scribe to either take out or to add and kind of weigh the likelihood of those things, right? And then, and then you go back to that principle of the complicated, the problematic, the one that's going to make people go, hmm, is probably the original. And so we have to figure out why people would take it out or why people would opt for a different kind of reading. So good translation. So here's my practice for if you don't know Greek or Hebrew. Get several translations of something. Compare them. You know, at the beginning of every English translation is a little thing about who translated. If they're all old white guys... (laughs) You may want to stay away from that, right? Because the most important thing when you're interpreting scriptures is that you do it with people who aren't you. Most important thing, diverse community. And that's not just race. We always think diversity is just race. That's not just race. It's social, right? Um, stat, you know, social, like uh, socioeconomic. Uh, it's age. It's gender. It's all, it's all kinds of things. Denominational, 
you name it. It's all those things. Because um, we sometimes don't realize that the obvious is not actually the obvious. Right? So interpreting in diverse community is going to help you with that. So a translation committee that is diverse is going to be more trustworthy. You be better believe they battled it out as only scholars can do. You know, in their wild and crazy bow-tied ways. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah. Um, mostly men. There might have been the occasional female scribe, but that would be really rare because women typically didn't get the kind of education that you would need to be a scribe, unfortunately. So, and that's early scribes, and then later as you get into the Middle Ages, of course, they are mostly men because it was in the monasteries where they're preserving the scriptures. So, the nunnery did things, boring stuff like feed the poor and stuff. Yeah, mostly men. Now, I, you know, when you say, oh, then the scribe changed this or the scribe left that out, I don't want you to read into that like a malicious intent because often scribes would do that because what they thought was, oh, the guy who copied it before me obviously missed this. Like, I'm just correcting a mistake. Almost like they were editors. That's how they thought of themselves. So what they thought they were doing was preserving the original. It couldn't be possible in our example that Jesus could say a few things and then go, but one thing. Jesus would know, is a few things or one thing, Jesus, right? And so a scribe would go, okay, that must have been a confusing bit. That must have been a mistake somehow. And so tried to correct it in that way. The difference is Christian scholars, Christian scribes would just change it in the text. Jewish scribes, keep the, what they think is the mistake in the text, and then they write the change in the margins. Because for Jewish scribes, see, the text was a different kind of level of holiness because it was directly from the mouth of God, and you can't change God's words. So it's a little bit different. You could actually, with a Jewish text, you can see the thought process of the scribes. They would draw a little arrow, <laughs> you know? Um, this is wrong, but I'm not going to change it right here because I can't do that. So that's a different, that's, they're born out of different contexts. And that's why there's a difference in the way that they handle that. But both of them do include those changes or what they saw as correction. Yeah. Any other questions? Okay. Um, I didn't coin this phrase, but representation matters. So if you are taught, whether that's um, intentionally or unintentionally, that the disciples are 12 men, how is that not going to affect how you see discipleship play out in your church, in your community? The fact that I grew up in a church in a community where I never saw a woman behind a pulpit and I never saw her teach 
in a, in a Sunday school above fifth grade. When I was growing up, did I think about those things? Probably not. I don't recall. It's been a long time. <laughs> right? Probably not. Okay? But it made an impact on me so profound that when I first had a female professor in grad school, I was almost brought to tears. There it is. That's what I want to do in action. I actually went to my undergrad professor, who was my mentor, as a sophomore. When I was called, I felt really the call of Jesus to teach Bible in college, in university. And I went, I remember vividly going to his office and sitting down and going, Can I do this? And it was not, Am I capable? That was not the, Can I do this? It was a, Am I allowed to do this? Because I had not seen that modeled. So I think starting with this idea of, the other thing is, when we think of what to do with women in the church, what often is the case is you go to those crazy passages <laughs> where people are like fighting, right? So you're either going to 1 Timothy 2, women should be silent, and blah, 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 blah which it's not silent, by the way, but that's a whole other lesson, okay? Or, um, you know, I don't permit women to speak, or I don't... The, they have to have their head covered, or um, women, uh, wives, obey your husbands, right? They those passages, okay? And, and those should be part of the conversation, but why are those the first places we go? Why? Don't we learn from story? I think we forget that sometimes. Didn't you grow up with fairy tales? Didn't you go up, grow up with um, nursery rhymes and Aesop's fables, Jewish children grow up with the Torah. Guess what? The Torah, the first five books, 65 to 75% story. And Torah means instruction. When we get up and we share our testimonies, what are we doing? We're telling our story in the hopes that it has some impact. So I think part of what we do, what I'm doing here is saying, you know what? The stories of women around Jesus matter just as much as these individual instruction texts that we get kind of all caught up in and should at the very least have a seat, an equal seat at the table. Yeah? And we just forget. We kind of, that's just not a familiar way of going about it, I don't think. So I hope that that helped answer. So I caught all the question there. Yeah. Make it a good one. When you say it's the final one, you know it's got to be a humdinger. <laughs> I'm the one who went over. Sorry. <laughs> Good on you. We're used to that here. And yep. Of course, we went through all the stuff and read things and whatever. And I literally uh, got rid of all those books years Right? And then I read that house of ours book. And I was like, this is still a thing. And so I feel dumb for not like for being off the grid with that. But uh, so then I just started asking around, and it's, it's very much a thing. And mm-hmm. according to her research, it's like it's actually ramping up. Mm-hmm. To uh-huh. Women, leadership, and forces, etc. I have a clue, and I'm wondering if you 
why it's ramping up? Fear. Fear makes people act and makes people double down. Does everybody know Beth Allison Barr's work? Okay, the making, I think it's called Making a Biblical Womanhood. And the, the, the premise, she's actually a historian, like a medieval historian, church historian. But her premise is she goes through a part of the big part of it is basically she says this idea of what biblical womanhood is, which comes from complementarians, which is like women, um, a hierarchy, right? Men have leadership roles and women have supportive roles, that sort of thing. Um, and basically what she argues is that that is a modern construct. That, that wasn't the assumption of the ancients. Um, and it wasn't the assumption of middle, uh, mid- the medieval church. But that is a uh, modern construct um, that um, is really borne out. The example that, that is most, I think, powerful is the, this explains the production of the ESV, the English Standard Version, which is essentially... Is it the NIV? No, it's the RSV. It's essentially the RSV, but anywhere there's gendered stuff that was gendered neutral, right, or inclusive, they went and intentionally made it patriarchal or male. So it's only, she said, actually just listened to a podcast with her being interviewed. It's like 8%. So it's like 92% just another translation, but they intentionally went and changed the women and men stuff because they didn't like it. So go to their editorial board and you'll kind of see that play out. They also the word for slave. Yeah. 